Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, coming to you from my very own desk, which is really thrilling. I'm back in my flat, looking out over the Valley of Gardens, and it is really good to be here. Hi, Carrie. There you are. Hi, Octavia. There you are. Oh my God. So nice to be back in this setup. Normally I record when I'm at my mum's cross-legged on my bed. I'm really happy for you too. Yeah, this is a stable surface for my microphone. It's very exciting. Anyway, before (laughs) we get into this, let's get the business out of the way. So if you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash lit friction. And if you do this, you will also get access to an extra mini-sode each month, which means because we're going to stagger the release dates of these things you will be able to get literary friction three weeks out of every four which is pretty good if you like us that is if not it's probably hell but anyway you can also (laughs) have the chance to suggest themes for us to discuss if you become a patron so consider it i love the idea of someone some for some reason not liking us and yet listening to our shows every time they came out (laughs) some kind of like torture maybe I feel like it's likely to be the partners or housemates of people who do like us who are like oh my god is it those fucking women again please will you turn this trash off anyway as Octavia was saying this month's Patreon minisode will be released in a week's time And this month, we will be talking about visual art and ekphrasis, very fancy word that I learned in college, in books, a theme suggested by two of our patrons, Jake and Hannah. That's right. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Hannah. So we we can't wait to get into that one. But more importantly, for now, how are you, my dear Carrie? Nothing is more important than our patrons, Jake and Hannah, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling really hopeful right now, as you might be able to hear in my voice, because the sun is out and it has been for consecutively more than one day. And <laughs> after, I do think we end up just talking about the weather all the time, but I see why British people do it. Thank because you. Because when something good happens, it's life changing. I feel validated. <laughs> I just had a really lovely bank holiday weekend with friends visiting and the sun was out and we barbecued and I feel like a newborn babe back out in the world and it's it's wonderful how are you similarly yeah I spent the weekend with friends and some of of friends who I used to live with at university and everyone's lives have changed quite a lot in the last year there's a baby there's a pregnancy obviously there was a death so it was just extraordinary to all be together we went and stayed in a um a house we rented in South Wales and we most of us are vaccinated at least with one vaccine and so we hugged (laughs) Mm -hmm. we we touched each other freely it was just amazing and it was we went to the beach we got in I got in the very very cold sea but it was really wild and I bet you found the same just how quickly it felt normal to do these things again and then there would be moments where I was like holding my friend's baby and I would be caught slightly breathless by this realization that like this has not been possible for so long so it was this kind of wildly joyful and also slightly vertigo inducing experience if you know what I mean yeah it's overwhelming sometimes isn't it right Um, totally those those moments of just realizing how strange and wonderful it is to be doing things that we used to do all the time yeah and without thinking about it exactly and also how precious it feels to hug your friends Again, mm-hmm. like something that obviously it's always lovely to hug someone you care about or you love, but I've never felt more 
kind of aware of how special it is than than recently. You um, you know you're one of the last ones. I it's still it's the hug that I'm waiting for, baby. We did we did have a like maybe I shouldn't admit this, but illicit hug. We did have remember? an illicit hug. I do yeah. remember that. I think about it every day. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Minnesota 21. <laughs> And thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. So Octavia, let's get into it. What is our discussion about today? Well, we decided that we would talk about book criticism, which I think it's quite a divisive topic. It's one that people feel incredibly strongly about. It's definitely something that I have felt incredibly strongly about at different times in my life. I'm in quite a neutral place with it currently, (laughs) as we will discuss. But I I do think it's an interesting one to talk about. And I think if you are in any way adjacent to or part of the literary world or the journalistic world, then it's something that's quite a live issue. If you're not, then you know, maybe you turn to critics to help you decide what to read. Maybe you're not interested at all. Like, I think it's all, it's all fascinating because essentially book criticism becomes an industry in and of itself. And like the questions that we're going to get into are like, who does it benefit? (laughs) What's the point of it? So yeah, let's start, let's start there actually. What is the role of literary criticism and book criticism in general? Yeah, it's, it's a, thorny question isn't it um and before we start i should say this theme was suggested by a patron of ours angelique who is also a colleague of mine oh my god Um, this is just nepotism (laughs) carrie plitt jesus christ but it was such a good idea yeah that was a great idea so thank you Ange. you know it made me think about how i engage with criticism and why so i'm really excited to talk to you about it i was thinking about this question The first function of criticism, I believe, and the one that people most often associate with it is to critique. And and I think that's a good and useful thing to have people reflecting on art in our society and giving their judgment on it and providing a, a view on it. Of course, this needs to be acknowledged as subjective and personal. And when we start to think of the view of a critic or even critics as universal or monolithic, it's a problem, but I think it's really good to evaluate art. I also think another very serious function of criticism, and one of the reasons I'm more interested in it, and one of the reasons I, when I do go to criticism, this is much more what I'm going for, is that it's a means of reflection on on what makes good art and what art is and what purpose it serves in our society and thinking about the culture in which we live in interesting and new and different ways I've got nothing to add <laughs> no I'm joking I think you're right I, I agree with you on all of those things I also think it's kind of a, a start the start of a conversation like sometimes you don't know how you feel about something you know sometimes I read a book I watch a movie I see an exhibition whatever it is and I come away from it thinking yeah I don't I don't actually know how I feel about it I can't locate my feelings about it and then sometimes I'll you know in that case I'll look for some criticism and often the criticism is what helps me figure out my feelings about it because I'll have a reaction for or against it and quite often it's against it so I'll read what a critic has said and I'll be like wait a second (laughs) 
I do know how I feel about it and it's not the same way as Jonathan Jones. But it's interesting, isn't it? For me, the thing I really look for in good criticism, and I agree with you about critique, I think that's I think that's a really vital function of it. But I want criticism to show me a different way of thinking about something that I've just uh, experienced, which is one of the reasons that I don't want my criticism to be from the people who have the culturally dominant perspective. And I think that's a real problem with the industry of criticism is that it, it is largely still people of a particular kind of educational privilege, racial privilege, gender privilege, all of these things. And I know privilege can be a really uncomfortable buzzword for some people, but I think it's super important to accept and acknowledge this, that often the people who are telling us how we should look at something are people who, as you say, like the subjectivity of criticism, which is super important, but they're looking at things through a specific subjectivity. And I think, you know, there is an attempt at the moment to open these positions out to people with more diverse perspectives and more diverse life experience and I think that's really really important like a case in point is their art rather than literature on the whole but the white pube are a couple of of women of color who come at the art establishment from a totally totally different place than the majority of the art critics writing in the big uh, broadsheets and um, and newspapers and um, and it's brilliant and they've blown open a completely new way of talking about art that doesn't need uh, a certain level of educational privilege to yeah. to begin it you know that they're, they're talking about it in a much more kind of experiential way and I think that's really important I'd like to see a bit more of that going on in the world of book criticism well we can talk about the state of book criticism because I think one of the problems is that there just isn't a lot of space for it um, at all yeah. in, especially in in the broadsheets and but a lot of it is happening kind of outside of the quote-unquote establishment yeah it's interesting what you were saying about good criticism offering a different perspective I also think my favorite criticism and really good criticism is always saying something more than just evaluating a work itself yeah that's how I think about it it's a means of thinking about art how we make art and all of my favorite critics open out the question of art um, or or books like what is a novel uh, what is a memoir? What what is happening now in culture that didn't used to happen? Um, what's changing? What what stays the same? You know, I think the best critics start with the work and end up somewhere very different, while still giving you a a new perspective on the work. Yeah, definitely. And I think also as a practitioner, like when I've got my writer hat on, good criticism elevates my work so I mean the the purest example I have of this really was was doing my viva for my PhD which was an incredibly rigorous experience but it was with a lot of respect and you've written this book and it's a book that you know probably only five people are ever going to read um, and here you are in this position with these people who've taken it very seriously and who are coming back with things that yeah very expertly considered criticism and I I found in that experience and I, I've heard this from a lot of PhD students you kind of rise to your higher self in response to that kind of criticism when it's given in a spirit of respect and generosity even if the criticism itself is quite uh, excoriating it can become an important collaboration and I find this in in my other kind of work as well that I find considered thoughtful criticism that critiques what I've created kind of supports me 
to evolve as an artist, but the kind of narrow, negative, purely subjective criticism does the opposite because we're all so fragile and tender. So it kind of that kind of criticism can really annihilate creativity and it can make create a, a culture of fear among artists, practitioners, writers, yeah. etc. And I think that kind of criticism is so often criticism that doesn't actually approach art on its own terms yeah uh, absolutely um, it, it it's so uh the critic is so blinded by their own perspective that they can't see what something is trying to do yeah I completely agree I want to get into what bad criticism is a bit further on but first of all actually I just want to ask if you read criticism of books because I don't really read that much so it <laughs> and I, I sort of didn't realize that until I was prepping the show and then I thought yeah, I mean, I have lots of opinions about this, but I don't read a huge amount of it. So whereas I know that you, I think anyway, that you do more. Yeah, I engage with it more. I love reading cultural criticism. So, you know, a long, a long piece written by Zadie Smith about the novel, for instance, that's like catnip to me. I love it. Um, <laughs> my friend Maria, who was staying for the weekend, your friend Maria too, yeah. uh, brought, we were talking about this question and she mentioned Rebecca Liu. Um, I love Rebecca Liu's writing. Yeah, who I think is was a great shout. And she she wrote this amazing piece about millennial woman in culture, um, talking about things like Fleabag and Sally Rooney. And I think she always has really interesting things to say about culture. And that I, I consider that criticism, of course. I'm not always interested in kind of straight reviews of books, although I do make exceptions for Pearl Seagal who writes in the New York Times and James Wood in the New Yorker, because I think they both do that thing where they're always writing about what fiction is or what books are in addition to evaluating work. And they're both just such good writers that you want, you know, I think it's really hard to make criticism interesting. You have to be a really good writer. For my work, I do engage with book reviews and I can see how they're so important for getting people to to read author's work, although maybe less influential than you would think. But, you know, <laughs> they, you know, they, they're, a, they're one of the ways in which people can find out about new books. And that is so essential for us as an industry, but essential for authors as well. And so part of me thinks it's really important that those things still exist, you know, even if sometimes they're not the most interesting things in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the it is definitely how, I mean, I, I mean, it's how I hear about books sometimes as well. Also, you know what? It's interesting listening to you talk. I was like, wait a second. I do read criticism quite a lot, but I make a divide in my mind, basically, because I sometimes write criticism. I read criticism with my, my kind of writing hat on, but I don't turn to criticism with my reading hat on. As a reader, I really don't like reading criticism I don't really like having a a pre-existing idea of what I'm about to read my favorite way to experience a book is to know basically nothing about it so I can have an authentic response to it and then like I said earlier like if I read something and I don't know how I feel about it or I've got a sense that I can't figure out then I do like to turn to some criticisms to see if anyone else has felt the same or if through hearing someone else's response I can learn more how I feel about it which is, I don't think we're so different in that respect. Uh, interesting. I am sometimes swayed by a kind of critical consensus. If I understand, and maybe this happens more 
with movies than it does with books. But if I understand that a lot of critics and kind of people I respect have read and liked or seen and liked something, I'm much more likely to pick it up. And I do think that comes like I don't read the reviews, but it kind of comes to me through the ether of the internet and kind of engaging with Twitter and things like that, that there is a consensus, if that makes sense. But I don't really, I don't seek out reviews until usually I've consumed or read the thing. And like you, I love engaging with criticism after I've I would say maybe too much. Like (laughs) I've been known to like immediately when a movie ends, I like Google it and read like seven articles about it and then listen to like seven podcasts about it and then know all this trivia about it. Like I, I feel like I want to know, I want to participate in the cultural conversation around the thing I'm reading or the movie I'm watching. Yeah. Interesting. I think also, I mean, you could say what we do on the show is, feeding into that I don't think we're critiquing very often but we're certainly reviewing maybe we are critiquing in a much looser sense in our conversations I don't know like I feel like we're not totally separate from this as an idea calling ourselves cultural critics seems quite it seems a bit fucking pompous doesn't it yeah 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 (laughs) but yeah we're we're engaged in this industry of criticism certainly yeah 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 we give book recommendations on our show what Excuse me? <laughs> I thought we were just talking casually. No, I know. You're absolutely mm. right. It's, but this is, okay, so this is really interesting, actually, because while we're talking, I'm realizing that I have some kind of resistance to the idea of book criticism, which is absurd because I engage in it and I write it and I talk about it. But it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Well, it has quite a stuffy reputation. Yes. Um, as you were kind of talking about before it was it was very often the realm of privileged well-connected white people yeah. for a long time the broadsheets still have remnants of that and the most influential ones certainly do and also because i think a lot of straight book reviews are pretty boring super um, boring and then of course yeah. you have the other extreme right which is when there is a kind of criticism related scandal that gets everyone really hot under the collar and rubbernecky and I mean like I have to be honest I'm as guilty of prurience as the next person and I hate it in myself because I'm also a writer and I know how fragile and awful that whole process must be but it's complicated, isn't it? And I think it's I think it's difficult when you have both sides in your mind like I do, like I having worked as a writer, having worked as a critic. You're on both sides of the table. It's a bit like when I was working in universities and I'd have to do people's ex- uh, oral exams in the languages department and I'd just be like, "Oh my god, I know exactly how you feel right now." And I <laughs> <laughs> That does beg the question, do you, do writers make good critics? I think it's a really in some ways it's very simple and in some ways it's very complicated to answer that question because I think that there's no reason why a writer would make a bad critic because I think just by by dint of being a writer because I think most writers are thinking very critically about what they're reading in order to deepen their practice and to find their own voice and to respond uh, to the work around them and their peers and everything. However, I think that no person can exist outside of the paradigm around them. And obviously all writers exist within the network of the industry that they're in and they have relationships 
other writers and with other publishers and editors and everything and you, you know how do you how do you have a truly impartial perspective and the question of do you use your influence for good or bad and as we've seen in the last couple of years there have been a couple of um really vicious reviews of debut novels written by more established novelists and you know that feels like a power imbalance that's pretty unforgivable so and you've got to wonder what motivated that you know and also when is the critic writing something in order to elevate their own profile I suppose as well right yeah I I agree with all of that I think I think it takes a very particular kind of person and a very particular kind of writer to discard their own biases and sublimate themselves to writing about somebody else's work and and have the kind of openness and tenderness to do that well. I think there are certain authors who are very good critics, like Sadie Smith, who I already mentioned, I think is an excellent critic. Your view of Sadie Smith is totally impartial. It's not like you're a fangirl. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree, she is an absolute I acknowledge my biases. Yeah, um, she's an exquisite <laughs> cultural critic. Yeah, but it's so funny, like, often newspapers will do this thing, especially in nonfiction, where they assign somebody to review a book who wrote on a similar topic and in some ways I mean I can see the logic behind that because those people will understand the area but also those are the most biased people because they have a very particular view on something and they've done it themselves and of course they're going to often take issue with how an author chooses to represent a time in history or a certain scientific idea Um, right I see it all the time and it's not about you if your criticism becomes about you then it's probably not good criticism I think yes although I think that there is a space for a totally different kind of writing about other cultural products but let's say books here that is very much about the personal response and perhaps we need a different word for it that's not criticism Mm. but I, I can really enjoy that kind of writing yeah you're you're right and maybe it's not about taking yourself out of it maybe it's finding a way to like sit next to something in an in an equal way I don't know yeah 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 Um, exactly yeah and to bring respect to it like I think it's totally possible to have potentially quite stringent criticisms of a piece of work and to be able to discuss those in a way that pays respect to the author because I think it's very rare I mean it's very very rare that I read something that I want to just completely rip to shreds and that I can't find any merit at all in you know really rare it occasionally happens (laughs) (laughs) those books shall go unnamed they shall actually let's think about that what do you think about bad negative reviews what do you think about hatchet jobs like is it ever excusable to do a hatchet job I'm in two minds about this. People always get angry about negative reviews, especially for debut authors, and especially when it's an author who's a little bit more established reviewing them. But I do think critics should be able to critique as long as they're coming to something in the ways we've been discussing, you know, respectfully, open, openly, constructively acknowledging their own perspective without a bone to pick. At the same time, and this comes back to my job and what I've been talking about, there's so little review space. And I do often wonder what function that kind of hatchet job serves. Maybe a rave has more weight if it's in the context of kind of more tempered reviews. I do sometimes think book reviews these days, especially in the UK, has so little impact because they are all generally positive and that's great, but it doesn't necessarily make you want to read them or believe them. And there are a lot of 
you know, mediocre books. I probably shouldn't say that as a literary agent, but, you know, most of what publishing puts out is, as you were saying there, you can find many good things about it, but they're not like stellar standout things. You had it here first, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we read a lot of them, right? Yeah, you know? we read a lot of mediocre books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's it's a tough question, but at the same time, I just I don't know that a debut writer who's written a mediocre book deserves a mean review. Well, I that's just, the thing, yeah. right? Like it's something that the writer Niven Govindan always talks about, and I think it's such an important point that he makes, which is, you know, writing as a craft, and uh, an author has to be able to develop that craft across a career. You don't expect someone on the first day of their new job to be an expert. And I think it's a really important thing when you think about the arts, that anyone who's making art of any kind has to be allowed to develop their practice. And that doesn't just mean that it's only young practitioners who get to be bad at something, because you can come to your beginning of art making at any point in your life, you know, you can be a debut novelist at 60. And the point is that there has to be, there has to be room for the first try to be a first try. <laughs> and the fact that we live in an age of of this like rampant capitalist production means that you can't unfortunately the fact of the market it's going to affect the way the work is made and you can write as many novels or as many memoirs or whatever you might want to try as as you like and leave them in the drawer of your desk at home they're not going to feel um, like the beginning of something real until they are bought by a publisher or a gallery or whatever it might be. It's because of the way we live and the way we think about what has value and what doesn't. So, of course, the first time that your novel or your book is picked up by an agent or a publisher, you know, it's your first go. And I, I do think there has to be space made for that. I think the trouble is when you read those kinds of hatchet jobs, they're often, in my view anyway, angry about the state of the industry and like what passes it's a bit like yeah. when you're hype yeah i feel exactly. like they're always taking down hype as though that's the author's fault yeah it's like the author has nothing to literally do literally nothing to do with this yeah. it's it's almost like yeah when your parent is like oh my god you're doing it a levels a levels was so much harder when i was young like <laughs> this is such bullshit you know it's it's it it stinks frankly i think it stinks i also just don't think it's good critique and i think that by like if we if we think back to what I was saying about how good criticism can really elevate your practice, then for a debut writer, you know, respectful, thoughtful, good criticism could be an incredibly useful thing for their career and for their development as an artist. So it's a yeah, real shame although, when it's done badly. Although the way our industry works, we prize debuts so much that, you know, a bad review can kind of kill your book. And I think that's what people get upset about. It's like, there are so few authors who are allowed to experiment in public. I don't like it. But I also, in this <laughs> bit, want to read you this quote by the writer Raina Maria Rilke, the poet, which I actually, um, this might make me sound like a terrible dick, but I, <laughs> I included this quote at the end of my PhD thesis, which was, of course, a massive work of criticism because that's what arts PhDs tend to be. But it felt important because I do think that the art of criticism is kind of a... Um, an art that itself contains many failures. And the Rilke quote is, there is nothing less apt to touch a work of art than critical words. All we end up with there is more or less felicitous misunderstandings. Things are not all as graspable and sayable as on the whole we are led to believe. 
And I think it's such an important thing to bear in mind as a critic as well, is that sure, you can say what you like and you can think what you think, but what you're capturing in those opinions is a moment in time and it's quite ephemeral actually. And as we conceive, we look around us, like great works of art mutate and change and thrive and exist in the world long after the critical words have landed. And when you think about the way that certain novels published in the 19th century that maybe had hatchet jobs written about them now are considered great works of literature or the many artists who weren't appreciated during their lifetime. Like, I think it's really important to remember that too when thinking about criticism and remember that criticism can be just as modish as anything else, you know? It's not absolute. I also love the idea of that as kind of like a fuck off to your thesis (laughs) evaluators being like, you may think this about my work of art, but... Your feelings are ephemeral. Oh my God. Do you know what? I literally, it never occurred to me that it could be interpreted like that. I'm sure within the context it couldn't have been. No, no, I think it probably could have been. I I meant it as a way of kind of undermining my entire project because because what I was writing about the artists and the filmmakers and the writers that I was critiquing are all people whose work I, I hugely respect. And in a way I was a bit like, who the hell am I, you know, some little human in a library having thoughts about this. So anyway, if you would like to hear us be respectfully and thoughtfully critical about some cultural stuff that we've done recently that's not reading, stay tuned. Welcome back. This is Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt here to give you our cultural recommendations, which I do believe are slightly less sofa-based. Mine are still sofa-based. Oh, yours are still sofa-based. Okay, anyway, hit me. What's your first one? Well, my first recommendation is Lonette's Hour, which is a monthly show on our host station, NTS, with the DJ, uh, Laura Coxeter. Eddie got me into this one. One of my absolutely favorite times of the week is Saturday, Sunday morning. You get up, you kind of lazily put on your bathrobe, you go downstairs, you make some coffee, you start, in my case, scrambling some eggs. I do the crossword. And I just think this show is the perfect encapsulation in music of that time. It's really, it's a mix of things like, you know, soul, classic rock, kind of jazzy stuff. But it's not easy listening you know it's always it's it's crunchy but also just kind of joyous and funky and also relaxing and just very good vibes very good vibes that sounds like very good vibes it's great it 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 goes out on a sunday every month on nts but i sometimes listen to um episodes on on the nts website or app and i i just can't recommend it enough if you are doing your crossword on a Sunday morning, making some coffee, just turn on Lonette's Hour and feel the vibes. How would the vibes be on a sunny Tuesday evening making eggs and purgatory for dinner, which is what I'm about to do? I think the vibes would work in that situation as well. Okay, good. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's your recommendation? Okay, well, my first one is a very much not on the sofa one, which is, I just, it fills me with so much joy to be able to, to say that. Um, I went to the Tate Britain 
and it was just amazing. I just went and did one of the permanent collection routes, which are free, although you can make a donation, which we did um, because, you know, it's been rough on um, art institutions. But anyway, we mainly went because we wanted to see the installation in the main hall, which is a piece called Rupture Number no. One, Blowtorching the Bitten Peach, which is a great title. I think we can all agree. A wonderful um, title. Yeah. And I, oh my God, I absolutely loved it. I mean, it's like a massive installation piece. It works its way through several rooms. It's made up of bits of salvaged machines and fabrics. There's audio, there's screens with images. And it it ends with this incredible meditative, but also like completely kitsch video of a peach superimposed I think on a on an image of a sun rising and setting so it's just this peach hovering rising above the sea in this kind of gorgeous pink sunset and it I don't know it was so so not where I live (laughs) it was so not any like any you know the park my house the streets around my house my mum's house like it it was so otherworldly and I it made me realize how much I've missed that of just being able to put my body somewhere and let the environment transport me rather than having to do it all inside my own brain you know I felt like I could just hand myself over to the artist and she was just gonna yeah she was gonna take me every everywhere it also made my mouth water actually because the peach was incredibly juicy. <laughs> yeah, I I have to say that your description sounds very you, like peaches <laughs> and beaches, and I can see why you liked that. It was catnip, and it was also like some of the the colors were so vibrant, like gorgeous, vibrant blues, and then pinks and reds, and I think it really was that intoxication through environment thing that I've been missing so so much. So yeah, it was wonderful, and then and then we just kind of wandered through the permanent collection and had these like incredibly moving encounters with paintings that I've been going to see there my entire life. That I, you know, I probably go to the Tate Britain a few times a year without thinking about it. And obviously it's been a long time since I saw them. And I was like, oh, there's Lady Macbeth. She's still angry. (laughs) There's the lady with the big melons, holding the big melons. She's still voluptuous. Like it was, yeah, I don't know. It was a beautiful, it was a beautiful thing. I'm so envious. I would love to go to a gallery in London. I guess I can. Yeah. And next time you come, like maybe we should do a little outing together. With hugs. With hugs and peaches. And And then our recommendations could both be the same thing. Do a joint recommendation. Yeah, I'm up for that. So what's your um, what's your second one? My second one is the sitcom, I guess you would call it Superstore, which was originally broadcast on NBC in the States, but is now on Netflix in the UK. I have spoken before about my love of sitcoms and especially workplace comedies. I, I love they are my comfort. <laughs> I love a workplace comedy. <laughs> I just find them immensely comforting. And I, I know all of your objections to these shows and I accept them, but I, they are what makes me kind of happy and comforted and, and takes my mind away from my anxieties. Um, I usually have at least one on the go, which I get very involved in. Um, and I and I will often watch it. Like if I wake up and I can't sleep, I found it really helps me to put on one of these shows. Because there's, there's not very much peril. You can kind of get wrapped up in the narrative, but you don't really have to know what's going on. Yeah. They're kind of perfect for for being taking yourself out of yourself and there's Um, a predictability right like you know what you're going to get from an episode of friends it's never gonna like you say there's no peril it's never going to surprise you 
Exactly. Yeah. So in the past few years, I have powered through and I would recommend all of these if this is the kind of thing you like. American Office, 30 Rock, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Parks and Rec. I just finished watching All Friends for the first time. New Girl, Community, the list goes on. But what I like about Superstore is that it definitely has the DNA of all of those shows and is trying very much, I think, to be like one of those shows. It's not like casting off the trappings of this tradition, particularly The Office in that it has a bunch of characters working together who are very different, but you come to love them in their own way and they all get along in the end and appreciate each other's weirdnesses. Lots of zingy jokes, lots of funny situations, a couple that you're shipping for a long time who you want to get together and then they do get together. Maybe that's, I maybe I'm giving that away, but they always get together anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think the show, I mean, it has an interesting twist. It is about capitalism. You know, it's, hey, it's about what I'm it interested. means to be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not thinking too deeply about it, but it's about what it means to be a worker in a, in a huge conglomerate. And what that actually means in practice and the ravages of that kind of system. And it doesn't shy away from it. And I think it's doing really interesting things with that. And I'm just, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying it. It sounds good. I actually don't think you would like it. No. I, I can't in good faith recommend it to you based on what you've told me in the past. Yeah. The thing is, I love the idea of sitcoms, but basically whenever I try to watch them, they make me too depressed about the structures within which we live. So yeah. if, if I could find a sitcom that was like properly critical of those things, I guess then it wouldn't be a comedy anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? Like there are certain other kinds of things that make me feel that way. But when I watch sitcoms, I'm I I can discard that. It's with rom coms too, you know. Yeah, I, we all I know have, the yeah. the gender dynamics are bad. I know that they're very like heteronormative and enforcing a very particular way of being in the world. But I still love them. My equivalent of that is is detective shows, which yes, equally yeah. tend to be incredibly heteronormative and regressive in their politics. So I don't judge. It's just not my flavor, you know. Yeah. Okay, so my What's your well, last? my second oh. one is also like it's not it's not that different in a way, but I oh I have so much to say about this thing. I it's not really a straightforward recommendation, but it is this thing that I just spent a lot of my life doing, and I need to talk about it. It's a program called The Affair. I watched I haven't seen five it. seasons of this thing, and I I binged it, and I've I really gave it a lot of my time and I found it incredibly compelling like so compelling that I'd watch an episode while I was making dinner and then I'd watch the next one while I was eating dinner and then I'd be like okay well I have to watch the next one so I'm gonna find a way to bring it into the bath with me like <laughs> really bingey binge binge and I actually got to a point where I had to say something I had to talk to people on Twitter about it because I was like I've, I've been locked in this relationship with this series and I need to talk to people so it's got Dominic West in one of the lead roles and Ruth Wilson both actors who I really enjoy I think a great ton of people um, Maura Tierney I never know how to say her name Maura Tierney maybe who's also fantastic and it's a big show about relationships it is unsurprisingly about an affair and Dominic West plays this like terrible man who it is so delicious to like hate but also he kind of fails upwards even though he also fails downwards in some quite profound ways and oh man okay so one of the things that is really compelling about it is that it's 
it's basically novelistic in scope. It You end up following the initial characters and then you kind of meet their children in the future and it brings in some climate change stuff, which is a bit of a surprising one because it starts off as being very tightly about relationships and about sex, basically, and what sex makes people do within, let's be honest, an incredibly heteronormative framework. And that's one of the other things I found very interesting about it because it's kind of critical of heteronormativity in that it, it takes a very interesting approach to subjectivity, which it maintains throughout all five seasons, where the stories are told from different points of view. And you see that from, you often see the same experience through the points of view of the different characters. So you see that they're all unreliable narrators. So for example, the Dominic West character, in when whenever we're in his point of view, regardless of what's happened in his life, what stage of life he's at, the women are always extra sexy. It's just like, from his perspective, everyone's always wearing a dress. Everyone is always kind of hyper feminine in some way. It's almost as if he's like turned a dial and their boobs have got a little bit bigger and their butts have got a little bit bigger. And women are always responding to him in this totally sexualized, completely available way. And then when you see the same thing through the eyes of those women, it's totally different. And I think that's really smart. So it is kind of, there is this consistent criticism of this stuff at the same time. There is a relentless amount of sex in this show and the sex is just 100% basically penis and vagina, very unrealistic, (laughs) normative sex. And I thought that that was fascinating and very disappointing. It's, I don't know, I have a lot of feelings about it. And every time I speak to anyone who's seen it, they also have a lot of feelings about it. And I think one of the interesting things is that everyone I've talked to has said the same thing, which is that they were very irate at different points in the series and yet they kept watching and that when it ended they have continued to think about it since and that's exactly true for me and so in a way I think it's one of the more successful things I've seen in a long time because it has really got into my system and I think it was really I think it's HBO and it was really cool to see something that mainstream taking on this more literary approach to character and storytelling and form so yeah I don't know is that a recommendation if you have (laughs) seen the affair and you want to talk to me about it please slide into my dms find me on twitter like I just I need to know what you're thinking it's also funny to end a recommendation about a show called the affair by asking people to slide into your dms Uh, that's right yeah I mean uh, yeah I'm in a monogamous relationship but I'm I'm open to your criticism god what have I just Uh, said (laughs) I haven't seen that I especially like the way you're talking about it in terms of being irate and it staying with you because I think a very fair criticism that's been leveled at a lot of kind of Netflix shows is that they're they're meant to be consumable they're not meant to be challenging right um and I think that often leaves you being like oh that was nice and yeah. then you just forget about it right because like, it's sex like, education or yeah. queen's gambit it's like oh i enjoyed that it was very bingeable mm, done right the algorithm created this especially for me yeah yeah whereas this is really it's interesting that like, the showrunner is a woman there was quite a lot of contro- controversy ruth wilson ended up leaving early because she was so fed up with the way she was expected to be sexualized and, nu- and naked on screen and apparently there was a bad culture on the set around this and they didn't have intimacy coordinators or anything like that. And when you're watching it, it is really fascinating because the get out jail free card of having a certain amount of each episode shot from the perspective of this kind of sleazy man means that the show can have the kind of 
bullshit normative objectifying sex but it has a backdoor out of it because it's like well Mm. we're not doing that we're just doing it because that's what he thinks classic hbo yeah really yeah no totally so it's interesting i think it's uh yeah i would actually really 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 love to hear your thoughts on it it's also got how could i forget joshua jackson in it which was a real blast from the past yeah yeah pacey great nice to see you again Please go and watch all five seasons of The Affair so we can talk about it, Carrie. (laughs) I might. (laughs) (laughs) That's all the time we have for today. Thank you to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. That's right. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a very exciting show with the author Deborah Levy. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>